Gaming on the Frontier. Welcome to the Gaming on the Frontier podcast, your podcast on everything tabletop RPG, totally system agnostic. And now, your hosts. This is Bruce. This is Trav. This is Dana. And this is Tony. Uh, Dana, uh, as far as um, having a secret society of, as, as your backer, as your patron, or at least as an ally, um... As far as them helping behind the scenes, what type of things would you ask for from a secret society as far as, let's say you get into this situation where you stumble upon some evil secret society's wrongdoing and their counter, a good secret society, what would you ask for them? It's like, okay, yeah, we're going to fight you want us to fight, this is what we're going to need. What would you ask for, Dana? Because you're involved in a Bureau uh, 13 game now. Well, I mean, if it if it is something where... Uh, I, I'm, I'm assuming that I'm aware that said secret society is evil. Um, and well, in by, by the very act, if you walk in on it and you see an act that you know ethically and morally is... Let's say you walk in on a child sacrifice. Yeah. Evil! <laughs> Just see yeah. They, they 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 stand in that line. Anyways. So, in that situation, I think uh, it would probably require quite a bit. Um, obviously, the minimum being that I have to be able to escape alive. Most likely, uh, I would try to think of some way where the thing that I'm getting would help me eventually take them down. Um, of course, uh, I... I, I Probably would not be the type to try to come up with something right on right on the fly, but if it's necessary, I would probably just ask them to give me some sort of uh, some sort of power or weapon or something along those lines that I know would help me overturn things. I mean, we've seen it plenty of times. Uh, a perfect example that, though it's less of a secret society, uh, we've got. Um, Spawn and his, and his armor, armor that, that he received, received from hell, hell specifically, oh, yeah. specifically to, to assist hell, hell and then he ends up using it in order to fight them and stop their assault. Their assault. Um, that's, that's the sort of thing I would probably look for, for is, is, is something like that that would give me at least a um, at least a, a an edge or some sort of equal footing to whatever they can throw at me. Well, yeah, if you're sitting there and you walk upon this group and you know they're doing magic. You walk in, you see, and um, forgive some of the listeners, I'm going to get a little graphic here. Your player characters walk in, and all of a sudden you see them, you you see the pentagram and all this other paraphernalia going on, and they slit this kid from neck to pelvis, and all of a sudden you see weird lights and hear maniacal cackling going on, but no source, and all of a sudden a demon pops up. I'm pretty sure that when the time comes when 
you want to start asking your allies whatever they do, I want defense against it and stuff to be able to stop them. Which would be big guns, armor, possibly stuff to counter the magic because you see it's magic. And yeah, so you're just going to want to be on an equal foot. I mean, you're not going to go up against the big bads. You're mm-hmm. going up against their foot soldiers, basically, to begin with. Yes. So you're and- going to want... It's like the Bureau... As a Tony, I, I will make sure that you get up to speed on at least these games because we're going to be using this as the basis for a lot of our discussion. Um, you're going to want the best in the armor, the weapons... Anything of a supernatural nature to help counter their supernatural stuff. Yeah. Like healing potions or whatever. You're, I mean, it'll be what you can think of at the time or what you learn from your scoping out your new allies. Mm. Okay, what am I, you know, what can I do? How are they going to help me if they want me to be their foot soldiers because we have fresh intel and we, excuse me, can go up against them. I'm not walking back in like I did the last time. What you uh, want is you want very specific information as to the tactics and the methods of the uh, and equipment of the people you're up against. Well, yeah, because basically, if, yeah. yeah, if I know that a, the a group that I'm up against is really big into demon summoning. Uh, you know, I want to basically walk in right when they're summoning a big demon with a super soaker because I am just going to blast that protective circle to bits and just Wash listen because <laughs> demons never actually want to do stuff that they're being summoned for they really just want to tear loose yeah. and so you just let them just you know deal with the bad guys and then come back later and, and then and then get rid of the demon <laughs> yeah that would okay yeah scum versus scum I always love watching that battle preferably right. from a, lo- a very far distance Right. But most people don't walk into uh, that kind of a situation toting a super sober. All right, John Constantine. <laughs> <laughs> My name's Kramer, Chaz Kramer. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, so now, neutrals, now these are people that. And, and I don't really. Uh, see, that's the thing. I mean, you're. I don't see that often as a. Unless they get directly involved with you, you know that the secret societies are out there and they don't directly, absolutely manipulate your life that you know of, yeah, they would be considered as neutrals. I mean, it's... How can I say this? And it can go either way. It, The secret society, they are a neutral until you interact with them. And it depends on whether you are with their agenda, either willingly or unwillingly, or against their agenda. Then they switch to either enemies or allies. And it, just, it, it depends on the interaction with what you're... Again, it's like previous example. Yeah. All right, let me give you an, let me give you an example, Trav. Okay. Let's say you run across a secret society that's having an interaction with a, a negative interaction with another secret society, but the fact is is that they just there happen to be there and most of their operations take place in an entirely different country. 
they're, you know, they're not going to, they're going to be neutral towards you because, you know, I mean, if you, if you work against either, if you just throw in your hat into the ring and you choose a side, then of course the other side is going to be against you. But I'm saying after it's all over and done with, unless they take it personally, they're going to be like, okay, so, you know, we ran into the lo- you know, we ran into the local police, you know, the local militia or whatever, that, that Scooby squad, whatever. But, you know, we don't have to worry about it because we're out of here. Yeah. It's like these people don't really interact with us. Yeah. Oh, we, have yeah, to we, might, we might help them out. We might give them, we might give them some resources so they can, you know, do some stuff, do some disinformation on our behalf. But you know, we really don't care one way or another. We don't. There's no reason for us to um, radicalize them because they're not into our agenda. They just happen to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Most movies that involve like the Goonies, <laughs> or, or some of the Indiana Jones, I swear, is like, <laughs> yeah, really, you know, space aliens. <laughs> yeah, I don't really care about it. You know, just hate you because you're a Nazi. That's really why. Yeah. I'm not trying to save the world. I just hate you, Belloc. <laughs> uh, okay. So, this is something I mentioned earlier. Player characters in secret societies. And you kind of basically only really have three. Where you have, let's say you have six characters. And one of them is a member of some secret society. Now, he's going to have that agenda that may not always be in sync with the rest of the party. They have their instructions. Let's say it's, okay, okay, again, Bureau 13. Let's say you're, oh, here's some, oh, I've done this. Incursion. Uh, this is um, science fiction. You're abducted, and now you got to try to find your way home in a saucer that's basically God tech. Um, it's Star Trek level technology. Yeah. So, I had it where, yeah, everybody was what? doing... They, they were all incursion inductees. One of them was a Bureau 13 agent. So he had a secret agenda. Get this back to Earth to Ray Robertson, the, the head tech guy from the Bureau, because Professor Robinson would eat this up. He'd just be like, thank you, God. you know. And so if you have that one... He's going to always have his own reasoning, and you're... And, it may not come out. Usually, unless the gamer is exceptionally good, and usually, you know, and the game master and him talk about that, nine times out of ten, that secret agenda is going to come out. It happens. It's very rare, from my experience as a gamer, like, yeah, and you've managed to keep this hidden the entire time. You might be able to do that in a one-shot at a con, but usually if you're running a long-term campaign with your own set of players, it's going to come out sooner or later that you have this this plan that you've had to, you know, act on because you are of this group. Yeah, you have your own agenda. Yeah. Another right. one is the entire party is part of this secret society. It's effectively, effectively what, what happened, happened to Ash. 
his, he finally figured out a way to realize what his secret plan was all along, and it, it kind of got him in trouble. That's why he ended up leaving the, uh, the Bureau. <laughs> ah, okay, so this yeah. is your, yeah. Yeah, that was my first Bureau 13 character, and he was all about power by any means. Um, and so his, his final, the thing that finally caught him up and, and got him caught up to the point that he had to leave the Bureau was he got offered the effectively ultimate power. And so he was like, okay, yeah, I gotta, you know, force a few people to worship you? Fine. <laughs> as long as I get the power to go with it. <laughs> yeah, see, that's the thing with the Bureau. <laughs> and Bruce knows what I'm talking about here. The meme with Mike Bonkowski, the Bureau's OSHA agent. When someone asks you if you were a god, you say, no, we're the ones that take down gods. You always gotta watch out. If you're going to sit there and try to go for ultimate power while you're in a Bureau 13 game, your fellow team members are obligated to knock you down a few pegs. Because they realize, no, this is not what we're in for, ultimate power. Um, and that, that entire party, where all of you are part of a secret society, and this goes back to the allies or patrons, you all have the same agenda, mostly, unless somebody wants ultimate power while you're there. <clears throat> And you all have generally the same goal for Bureau 13, protecting America from supernatural threats and making sure that the public never knows about them. Or, I'm trying to think of another secret society-based game where you're a player character. Well, the one I always remember is Paranoia. Yeah, yeah. So, well, it wasn't and, really and, a secret and, society. Everybody knew about the computer. No, but there were secret societies that were they were part of, and part of your job was to go and see, find people who were part of secret societies and kill them. Oh, but you yeah. were part of the secret society already. As, as I said, it's been ages since I played Paranoia. Yeah. We're talking decades. Um, right, but yeah. you could have like let's let's give an example similar to you know uh, Paranoia or let's say Logan's Run. Okay, uh, where you have three people who are part of three different uh, secret societies. One of them wants to gain control over the computer or whatever the governing power is, and 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 basically get their point of view. You know, their, what they they think should be the reasons for living across. Okay, or just take power. Okay, then you have the second group who's uh, who wants to escape. So they're looking for resources and information about how and uh, about the defenses of you know the the locations so they can get out of there and uh, and they also want to learn about places to go and then you have the third group who might you know want to protect a certain subgroup within that group that that you, they think need to be protected like you know let's say uh, and again like uh, when we we're talking about uh, Logan's Run. People who've gone over the age of, of uh, thirty yeah. in the uh, in the movie or twenty one in the book, and they're being now hunted by Sandmen. Okay, that group is trying to pr protect them. You know, might, they may not necessarily try to get rid of them. They just might want to provide them with some place to keep them safe. So you have all three groups. They might work with each other to achieve each individual goal. Okay, but they uh, but they're still separate. And you may never know the scope, you know, like how many members are in each group. You'll probably never know, you know, what, uh, do, you know, and, and does does the people in charge know about these different groups? They probably do, but they don't know, again, 
who and what and where, so it all ends up in a big constant, you know, cat and mouse game. Yeah, that would be the hodgepodge members secretly in all groups, where you have, like, one guy might be in, oh, God, um, and we'll use incursion because there are various groups. Let's say you have a guy who's in Molo, which is the Constopner's version of the Mafia, and you have another one, and there's another one, like a peaceful group. As I said, I'm looking over incursion stuff now for my Friday game, and I'm blanking on all the groups. But it's just where everybody... And again, the hodgepodge, definitely for advanced role players. You could not run this as, yeah, I'm going to do this for, you know, I've got a bunch of new guys and they're all going to role play. You don't want to do this for people starting to role play right away. This is somebody who has to have, I'd say, probably 10 years under their belt at least to do a game where you're all together, but you're all from different groups or agencies or societies, and you not only have to fulfill your group agenda, but the agendas of the people with you. Technically, Fringeworthy would be a good version of this. Yeah, you're working for the UN, but you're also working... I mean, it's not secretly. You all know that you're from these countries, but it may not be known that your own country's interests may be getting pushed by your government. Oh, you've been selected to join this UN group to go out on the fringe paths. Fine, you're still working for Mother Russia or China or the U.S. or bring back tech for our country and, yeah. Or Mohammed. Exactly, yeah, for religious ideologies, yeah. Yeah, sure, yeah. And see here, and and, and the reason I think that they need more experienced players is because a lot, if they're going to be in these separate groups, their separate agendas, a lot of the action has to take place between the GM and the players out of the game session, you know, over you know over the succeeding time period to the next game session, because the other people can't know about them. And if you just sit there and go through one after another, okay, this is what your secret group is doing. What are you doing in your secret group? What are you doing in your secret group? Well, it's really hard to met, you know, for young players not to metagame. Yeah. Okay? And secondly, they're going to be bored stiff because they get a tiny fraction of the spotlight. Better to concentrate on the thing that you're all doing together during the game session and then do all that other stuff afterwards. Yeah, that's the stuff that you would be, you know, texting or emailing or whatever or, you know, PMs on Facebook. Because I've got got a Facebook group for every campaign I'm in. So it's like I'll sit there and I am and talk with, you know, Carrie about this or Gina about this or whatever. So, yeah. That. Uh, Skype problem with Tony. Um, So we have now... PC ran secret society. Now these are the ones where the player characters themselves make a secret group. The only way I I mean yeah, you could try to do, the only thing I can think of is superheroes. I mean, it's always possible. I have actually never seen a party get to that point as as many years as I've been doing this. Um I don't, I don't think, think I've, I've ever gotten, gotten in a game, game where things have really, really gotten to a late game, game uh, with the party, you know, being all cohesive and such. Um, perfectly all right, especially the way I like to run my games. I always like to give my my players as much freedom as I can. Um, but yeah, I don't think I've ever gotten to a point where they've actually gone through the trouble of doing something like that. Though that would be so fun. <laughs> Yeah, as I said, for me, I'm just... If, if the characters get together and make their own secret group, yeah, superheroes are the only thing I can come up with. I mean, espionage group, you're usually going to have some type of um, governmental or, you know, otherwise some type of group backing, but if it's a PC-run secret society, it's going to be... Even if it's, like, street-level superheroes, you're still together, nobody knows that you're in this, and so you make your own rules, you make your own bylaws, you have your own codes that you go by... 
And so, yeah, I mean, we have internal tensions, inter-societal conflict, expanding investigator. Internal tension. You've got, and, and, and a good way to describe this, it, it's like the Justice League. You have five or six lone wolf people, and they decide to get together to join this group. Or they are brought together, like in my Prometheus campaign. You have five or six people who are injured, and an alien AI with nanotech rescues them all and augments them and says, you're now together, you want to save your city, I just gave the ability to do so. Because often a lot of them were injured or nearly killed because of criminal elements. It's like, you want to fight this crime, I just gave you the ability to do so. So yeah, I you have internal tensions. You're going to have six or eight people with different life agendas, different life goals, all of a sudden thrown together. Yeah, they have their common goal to do this around the table, but one of them might have to balance being a superhero with being a soccer mom. Or another one might have, you know, eight to five job that he has to go to and all of a sudden something breaks out across town. Another one might, you know, be um, like a cop. And so he's kind of, you know, he has his rules and regulations he has to follow. So you have these internal tensions among PCs who are trying to keep this group secret and act together for whatever goal usually good, although evil campaigns can happen. I mean, personally, I've never run a campaign where everybody's villains. I mean, yeah, there's been a lot of moral gray areas, but where just everybody is straight out villain. No, I've, I've never done that. I've been game mastering for 25 years. Um, So yeah, you have all these various conflicting goals going on, and it, it's something that you have to deal with making this this secret group. Inter-societal conflict would be more along the lines of you have other, and trying to find a Perfect example of PC-run secret societies and inter-societal conflicts. I'm blanking on this. Um, if anyone's got any suggestions, because I'm, I'm drawing a total blank. I'm just getting caught up. Sorry, I had to reinstall the app. Yeah. Um, trying to figure out where my actual... I would probably... It could be another superhero team. Let's say you have an established team, and then you got a bunch of young upstarts coming up from the streets, and all of a sudden they think they want to be the big boys on the block. You're not hero and villain. You're hero and hero. But you mm-hmm. have the one superhero team that... It, oh, okay, perfect example. <clears throat> you have the superhero team who has been... And it's still a secret society because you are in this group in your public persona. Your secret identities, your normal identities, nobody knows that you're part of this group. So... You have the city-backed, duly deputized, they're part of the police department, and now you got a bunch of young vigilantes coming up from the streets. Yeah, we got powers, we got talents, we got gadgets, and we're going to come up and help fight crime. You're both you have heroes. no authority. Yeah, but you don't have the backing. Vigilanteism is a crime. Yes, we have in real life people like the Michigan superheroes, and they've been through several incarnations. I did research for them from past campaign. They're still vigilantes. If you go up and dress up in a costume and kick the crap out of somebody because they're, you know, beating up on an old lady, you're still going to be brought up on charges of assault and battery, intent to great, do great bodily harm. You're still going to go to jail. So these guys, so your, your hero team that is duly deputized is now having to fight these young upstarts who have no backing, even though you're doing the same job. So that inter-societal conflict is there. You may appreciate, yeah, they're cleaning up the streets, they're doing all that, and they've graduated to the big leagues, but we still have to stop them because, by law, they are still vigilante. It sounds very much like uh, Superman versus the, the elite situation. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, well, even... Well, I'm trying to remember the elite. Were they the deputized one? No, uh, they were like a British... A group of British superheroes that were sick and tired of Superman like just arresting criminals and not killing them. And uh, so they they effectively come in and they... 
they kill this one criminal. And uh, they think that they get rid of Superman, but, uh, you know, obviously he's Superman. So so right when they think that, you know, that they're so powerful when they work together as a team, he effectively shows them that, you know, he, he only seems weak because he's constantly holding back. Oh, yeah. Some Krypton. I mean, come on. Yeah. Well, that, that code against killing. But uh, in the television series, uh, at one point they made a big they made a big point. Uh, Batman reveals that both he and Robin are duly deputized, okay, members of the police force, which is why they're allowed to go and arrest people the way they do. Uh, and if you go back to Batman sixty six with Adam West, they're deputized. That's what I'm talking about. The television yeah. show. Yeah, that was done, like, early, early on in Batman canon. Right, but, of course, in The Dark Knight, he's totally not deputized. Yeah, well, Miller. Yeah, it really seems like it depends on which comic, because there's a... In in White Knight, I know uh, that's kind of the whole point, is that uh, Bruce Wayne is not deputized, and uh, the rest of his team actually goes to join the police force, you know, uh, because... They're they're kind of put with an ultimatum where uh, you know I, I don't know if you guys are familiar, but the effect of the the idea behind this comic is that Joker for a little while becomes sane, and uh, he comes up with the the thing of uh, Batman the way that he is, you know the way he operates. He says kind of like uh, breeds problems, right? And uh, it makes these criminals more likely to, to go about things that if he actually shared his resources with the police, then these criminals would not be capable of really stopping them. And so the rest of Bruce Wayne's team actually joins and becomes deputized by the police. You know, and it kind of puts Batman on the out. Um, very, very good storyline, by the way. <laughs> really good story. But, yeah. Um, and, and some, you know, that always places the police in the situation where they have to decide whether to turn a, a, uh, a blank eye toward what's going on um, because it's actually making life better. But uh, they can never fully embrace you know, the, the, the visual aid, because to do so would be to uh, embrace anarchy, which is essentially what uh, visual aid is. Yeah, it, it just, see, that, that whole thing with, with Batman and Commissioner Gordon, it's technically an unofficial relationship. I had never heard that Batman was ever deputized. I, I mean, I watched the, the 66 series as a kid. I never you remember want, seeing that he was part of the guy that he was, I mean, granted, he was in the camp yeah, factor. Season one, season one, he mentions a couple times, like two different episodes, I'll have to do the research and get back to you, but there are two occasions where he, uh, just in casual conversation with, uh, Commissioner Gordon, he mentions that he's the deputized officer of the law. Yeah, he actually shows a badge to somebody yes. at one point. Yes. You know, to, it was, and both he and Robin pull out their badges and show them saying, this is why we can do what we do, is because we are, we are deputized. You know okay. what? I think it's in the movie, the uh, Batman 66 movie, uh, the one with the bomb and the shark repellent spray. Well, yeah. I don't I remember that. I mean, it wasn't the same time, so uh, I, I thought it was an episode, but... It, it might it, have been, it, but I yeah. I know what you're talking about. Right. They have it clipped on their utility belt, and they, because uh, in con- random conversation, it comes up, and they both, like you are saying, they flash their uh, badge. Yeah, but it almost it almost never comes up because the people that they're fighting are murderers and scum. So it's like, you know, it's usually a, a situation of kill or be, not kill, but, but basically a, a fight or be killed. 
Um, and and that's the thing. The vigilanteism, you know, as long as what as long as you sub, don't break laws, uh, you actually can get away with it. But it's a really hard thing to do, and it usually depends an awful lot on how the uh, police force, the uh, district attorney, or whatever is willing to view the situation. Well, yeah, uh, you gotta you gotta do things like like Batman. He will break and enter to get evidence to get a criminal. Now, technically, if you did something illegal, gain the evidence, and I and Tony before. I joined Napa. I was studying for a criminology degree at EMU. If you break and enter to get evidence to convict someone in a case, it's illegally attained evidence, and nine times out of ten, it's not going to be admissible in court. Not since 2001. Under the Patriot Act, all you have to use is the guise that they're a terrorist. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it, yeah. But if, if terrorists... In the last I mean, 20 years, basically, 17 years, you can even use domestic terrorism as an excuse, and that's how they illegally obtain information on a ton of people. Uh, yeah, but they, but they still have to be working for Homeland Security to do that. Yeah. yeah see, it's, that's yeah. a broad spectrum with the NSA and FBI and CIA. I mean, you can easily, easily obtain, you know, permission from them. Yeah, see, that that gets into a gray area there. But, but, but we're talking about vigilantes here. Right, such, right. You know. but, now, uh, I will say that Bat, uh, you know, I, Batman or any vigilante would gladly break in to some, into some place beat people up, do whatever, to figure out where somebody is being held, threatened with their life, so they can go rescue them. Yeah. At that, which point, they don't care about getting somebody arrested. They're just trying to save the person who's in danger. Yeah, okay. But, yeah, usually as far as that inter-societal conflict, as I said, again, superheroes thing I can think of. You got the dip, duly deputized team conflicting with vigilantes, and it's, yeah, we're on the same side, but we technically were the ones with the badges that can do this stuff. You guys are barely criminals because vigilanteism is a crime. Now, well, you want to inter-societal. I mean, look at the gang wars in, like, you know, southwest Detroit in, like, L.A., I mean, that's inter-societal Yeah, conflict. okay, that's a real-world version. Yeah, okay. Um, Crips and the Bloods is a perfect example. And here yeah. in Detroit... Um, uh, the Counts and the Latin Kings. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, you have, there's constant inter-societal conflict that could be played off of. Okay, yeah. Now, expanding your PC-ran secret societies. A lot of secret societies, they grow over decades and centuries. So it's like, if you're a player character-run secret society, the only way you could really do that is if you're, I mean, and as far as in and out of game, is, okay, you've got five characters, you've gotten together, they're a group. You bring in a couple new characters, and so you've grown your secret society by adding these two new members. And usually it's going to be, they end up stumbling upon the stuff that you guys are doing. It's like, okay, we need to bring them in one, to keep them quiet about it, and two, because they stumbled upon it and now they're drawn into this, we have to protect them. That that usually, for PC-run secret societies, that's the only way that I know of to expand, is you're doing it through adding more new characters to this group. And with investigators, you're going to have people trying to figure out your secret society. You're going to have cops tracking down vigilante superheroes or let's say you've become your own little band to fight an evil cult. You're still going to have cops going, well, okay, this 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 store was broken into and these guns and ammo were stolen. And we happen to find that on the security footage, this guy and this footprint and all this. And so you have people trying to break up your little secret society because in the course of you fighting whatever else that you're fighting, let's say another secret society, you've had to do things and you've left tracks. 
So you're going to have people trying to uproot and expose your little secret group that you've made, your group of characters, in order to, you know, they want to out. So you're going to have to work in order to, you know, really keep things under wraps. Cover your tracks. Again, this is stealth, tactics, planning, where you're living... Not so much off the grid, but just under the radar. You're trying to just not bring attention to the fact that you are part of this secret little group that you've made. And of course, the investigators, if it's a PC-run secret society, the people investigating nine times out of ten are going to be people with better resources than you. Police, law enforcement, other secret societies, usually evil or just, you know, ones that are causing inter-societal conflict. But they're going to often find a way to, because they've stumbled upon you, to expose, stop and or expose you. So, yeah, it's... with When you make your own little secret group, your characters decide to band together for whatever purpose, the stealth that is involved in it, it also comes with paranoia because you're making sure... Let's say it is superheroes and you're all in secret identities. You don't want your secret identity to be outed as you were part of this group of vigilantes. Because let's say... You are outed. Let's say you have a family. Well, first of all, the public, you know, recognition that you've been running around in a costume beating up people, that generally is just going to cause problems for you. Then it's the fact that now that you're outed, your family is now in danger. You're going to have your wife and kid or whatever, or your friends, constantly harassed by people that either you've wronged, or their friends, their friends coming after you, or new up-and-coming Turks that are wanting to, oh yeah, these guys are the big boys on the block. Yeah, they're going to knuckle under once I get a hold of, you know, his girlfriend, you know, or her husband, or her brother, or her, his sick Aunt May, or whoever, you know. So yeah, when, when PC-run secret societies, it brings up a lot more work for the players, because of the fact that they're going to have to realize that when they get together to fight whatever foe or group or ideology that they have to, it is. It's going to be a lot more work for the players, I think, because they they just have a lot of things that they got to keep under wraps. And the more detailed and richer background that character has, again, the more work for the the players to sit there and go, okay, I got to make sure that if I'm working a nine to five, I can only adventure weekends and evening. There's a chance that I'm going to, you know, that I'm going to be walking in with injuries. I'm going to have to explain like Daredevil when he's there in the the series and Matt's got bruised knuckles and a black eye. What happened? I bumped into something and most people just brush it off because he's a blind man. No, he was out there kicking the crap out of, you know, drug runners or whatever. So yeah, there are all these things that you have to go into to hide the fact that you're part of this secret group. Because it could not only ruin your life, but the lives of everyone around you. Okay, real quick, we can go through the six real-world examples of what we would consider secret society. And all of them, these are all real life. I mean, yeah, they can be used in a role-playing game as a secret society, but all of them have been in the real world. Some of them still are. Uh, We have the assassins, or, and let me get the the name here right here, Nizari Ismailis, or the Hashishin. These are the Middle Eastern assassins who supposedly smoked hashish in order to gain sort of a heightened state when they went out and did their assassination. They were the most feared group in the Middle East from the 11th to the mid-13th century. They infiltrated all levels of society, and whenever enemy reared its head, they killed them. They were part of that old uh, Arab caliphate. Yeah, yeah, um, because in this way, they were the most successful secrets, because they came in and out, you know, it's the old term, like, in and out like a duck mating, you know, just they came in, they took out their target, gone. 
and they would blend yeah. right in, and you'd never know where they were. Um, because, because they because, because they, they were, were farmers by day, but assassins by night. Yeah, kind of like ninja. They, they had they they weren't just assassins. They had identities in the world, so they could hide in plain sight. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. For the, for a little while. Um, of course, the uh, Hashashim actually uh, weren't very successful in the end. They were. Uh, Actually, uh, as I understand, they only actually managed to kill like two or three people before they were surrounded and their their little fortress was destroyed. Um, it was more one of those cases where where uh, the legend was far bigger than reality. Well, that's, yeah. the, uh, that's funny you mention that because I just read a book um, like a month ago about how ninjas really didn't exist. There were three or four cases of like certain people that were martial artists that invaded, like, rival temples and stole their, like, flag for their actual clan and displayed it at their temple. And that's, it evolved to the whole ninjutsu and ninja story. It's all complete BS and a complete myth. That's of course, the Shaolin, you to think. the Shaolin Temple thing was all based on one story yep. about some army trying to invade the temple and warrior monks defending it. And that's where all the Shaolin Temple monks being super martial artists came from. <laughs> and what's funny, once MMA actually opened up, and they actually had a couple Shaolin-style martial artists compete in, like, I'm talking mid-90s, like yeah. late 90s, and the UFC, and uh, um, what was the other one, Pride Fighting, and some of the other ones opened up, they were decimated, and it was proven to be complete BS. Even uh, Sports Science, uh, which is based out of Wayne State, but it's on ESPN, too, they studied a couple Shaolin monks who can supposedly channel their uh, key or their chi, and uh, perform, like, feats of strength they found under actual real-world scientific-controlled environments that it's all BS. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the the whole thing with the assassins, it's like, yeah, they they came in and they, they had their, what was it? Um, scholars from outside the order were quick to accuse them of brainwashing members and rejecting Islam. The brainwashing stories usually involved hashish as a major tool, leading the, to the appellation hashishim, that is believed to be the root word for assassin. Charges yeah. were also made of killing for pay, but evidence has been found only that they were willing to accept gifts or resources for killings they were already planning. The Hashishim, the actual word is Persian. It comes from the old Persian Empire, which actually were the ones that invaded Greece and uh, um, Sparta. But yeah, that's, it was all Pakistani, like Eastern Afghani and like Iran. Yep, the Nizari is mainly faith that some adherents even to this day, primarily in India. Their modern followers are ruled by the Aga Khan, Purportedly yeah, a linear descendant of the assassin imams, hereditary teacher's leader. Uh, yes. The modern Nizari Ismailis, of course, have nothing to do with assassinations, instead focusing on the spiritual aspects of their philosophy. Yeah. So they follow the Quran, and the imams are imams are high-level priests. In, in and which, which, yeah, what's crazy about that is that all spun off Zoroastrianism, which was uh, the Eastern, Eastern uh, European and uh, Islamic states, the old, old religion from, like, pre-Christ. And uh, that's what a lot of the old, old uh, Islamic ideals actually spin from. All right, the next one we have is the, and I'm going to, Aum Shinrikyo. Now, this is the group that is responsible for the 1995 Sarin attack on a Tokyo subway. Now, people were injured, and I think like 8 or 12 died. I've read into this. Uh, I've seen, it says here, 12 people and injured nearly 6,000 is what it says here. But. Oh, well, I, I, then I stand corrected. It's been a few years. Um, the basis of Alm's philosophy is a mixture of Hindu, Buddhist, and New Age beliefs with an unhealthy dose of apocalyptic Christian thought. Um, 
is what, as I said, from Secret Societies here. Uh, Ashara Shoko is the leader as the chosen instrument of Shiva to lead the world away from the impending World War III and create Shambhala, an enlightened society of superhuman beings. Yeah. Uh, began as a splinter of a yoga group with some mystical leanings. They then, um, st- then steadily added components from Buddhism, Hinduism, New Age, and apocalyptic Christian sources. What's crazy is they're all offsuits uh, ever since uh, their leader was imprisoned and he was just executed recently within the past six months. Um, the actual groups that offshot into other like subgroups are still under domestic surveillance by the Japanese government and their uh, uh, self-defense forces. I was uh, reading about that on The Guardian. They said they're under 24-hour surveillance, the buildings that they occupy and where they have their meetings. Okay. Um, yeah, as I said, this book came out... Oh, God, copy. Oh, 2006. Yeah, this is, you know... Oh, uh, let's see here. So we have them. And, of course, we have... The Freemasons, or the Masons. You see their Masonic temples all over the place, and have legacy people, you know, if your dad was a Mason, nine times out of ten, you're good again. Um, My one friend, Jaron, is a Mason. His father was in, so it was a legacy thing. And, of course, the Masons, of course, have just been around since time immemorial. Let's see, let real quick here. Well, Washington, D.C. is engineered off of a Freemason principle. Oh, yeah, yeah, they... Play out, um, there's pentagrams and, like, uh mathematical compasses that are laid into like actual street like the the, the directions of the street and the actual groundwork of uh, the nation's capital is all based off of freemasonry uh whether okay manuscript from a group of actual stone masons also called operative masons from around 1410 ad is the first real mention of the idea it indicates that hiram king's son of Tyr, held immensely valuable secrets According to the text, his secrets were remains of a science that survived the biblical flood and were eventually distributed by Pythagoras and Hermes. They spread throughout Europe but held some of their strongest connections to the British Isle. Uh, Hermes the God. Excuse me? Hermes the God. Uh, spread by Pythagoras, which is a mathematician, and Hermes the God. It says yeah. Hermes. I'm, yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Uh, it was in England, 1660, that the archetype of the Invisible College idea was openly formed in an organization known as the Royal Society. They received a royal charter two years later. And, I mean, Isaac Newton was even a Freemason, so, you know. Um, so were most of the founding fathers and a lot of the old British aristocracy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, many people in history were, and, of course, the Bavarian Illuminati, was created yep, yep. from it and all sorts of Rob groups and all of it yeah interconnected the p2 lodge and of course we know their main symbol the the square and the compass yes that i mean you can see it on like license plates people with you know the license plate borders if they're a mason it's there um, yep. now the thing with the masons is that with their rituals you can sit there and make like if you want to put them in a role-playing game i mean you can make it that they are just the movers and shakers or that their rituals actually are magic depending if you want to put magic into your modern day campaign in Secret Society, they have two different uh, prestige classes. One that's just all various little knowledge bits, and others where you gain spells like a D20 Modern Wizard. And since this is an OGL book, you would use most likely the, the, the D20 Modern Mage archetype. Well, that makes, that makes sense. Yeah. If, if you want to uh, use a non-magical use of something like a, 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 a cult like this, uh, Heinlein in his The Cat Who Walks Through Walls, the main character managed to avoid uh, a group that was trying to kill him by basically, uh, it was probably Freemasonry, but some group that used a fez, and he, by wearing it, he was able to get people to help him because they were like, brother, brother, okay, you know, and, 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 and moved through their organization, and they helped him all the way to escape because they thought he was one of them, and, and he knew enough 
to be one of them, even though he wasn't officially one of them. That's funny you mention that. I haven't read that in a long time, but I, I read that story by Robert Heinlein probably 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's crazy. Super yep. obscure. Okay, we have next, and we have three more here, and then we can wrap up for at least for tonight. The Knights Templar, or the Templars. Now, they were considered warrior monks back in the... Oh, they fought heavily during the Crusades, and of course they were given huge quantities of both money and land and donation from the, from the nobility. They were, kind of, they were kind of dissolved after... Uh, the, well, it was... Uh, Later on, but uh, the Vatican suspected them of pretty much uh, heresy. Oh, yeah, yeah, and they were pretty much just... Exiled. Yeah. And excommunicated, but that's actually... Uh, they believe that the Templars spread over. They think that they were some of the first ones that influenced the colonization of North America. And actually, uh, that show Oak Island, they believe that the treasure planted there is by the Templars. Oh, the Oak Island, the, the thing with the shaft and the multiple layers yeah. of wood and all that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I believe that was a Templar um, treasure site because it was so obscure and off the radar because it was really before the big, big colonization of the New World after, like, the Mayflower. Yeah, it says here, the Pope officially disbanded the Templars in 1312, saying that no right-thinking Christian would want anything to do with them after the scandal. Two years later, the last Grand Master... Jacques de Molay was burned out. I remember this stuff. (laughs) Um, Yeah, many people recognize the Templar cross as the one in Christopher Columbus' sails as he traveled through to the New World. This connection is most likely through Columbus's father-in-law, a Knight of Christ. Yes. Um, They had future, or they had knowledge of uh, North America in the Caribbean, which was kind of kept off the radar and only was really known among the Templars. That's why uh, Columbus was so hell-bent on sailing west, because uh, his theory, what he presented to uh, Ferdinand and Isabella was, it was a shorter route to India. The conspiracy is that he actually knew of North America and the uh, resources. Because the Templars, they came over shortly after the Vikings, supposedly. So, like, late 15... Well, yeah, the Vikings discovered North America about 500 years before Columbus did, yeah. Yeah, like right around 1,000 to 1,100 AD. Okay, um, next we have Mossad, the Israeli intelligence agency. Now, with Mossad... uh, Yeah, they've had their mix of stunning successes and equally stunning failures. They, I mean, and, and everyone knows of Mossad. It is a paramilitary... But... Obviously, you could use them for secret clandestine operations, black ops. Well, like modern, if you're talking about like Syria and like uh, the current like uh, proxy wars going on in the Middle East, because supposedly they've actually infiltrated and worked their way up into like high level commands of like Al Qaeda and ISIS. Oh, yeah, yeah. So Uh, you could go that route. Yeah, they they were farmed under the current name in 1951, but its predecessor had been around obviously for much longer. Um, three years after its formation, undertook a drastic plan and attempt to break up possible U.S.-Egypt relations. A cell bombed several American businesses in Egypt and attempted to blame it on local forces. Yeah, so they, that, that kind of, it was known as the Levon Affair or the Unfortunate Affair, and it was Israel's first major scandal. Because when Britain structured Israel and Palestine right after World War II is when they were initially founded in their infancy. They did locate Adolf Eichmann, an SS officer involved with the concentration camps. Uh, he okay. Was, yeah, he had escaped to Argentina with the help of a Vatican passport. Mossad eventually led an operation to capture him and smuggle him back to Israel, where he was publicly tried and executed. So they, they've done things back and forth, and if you're doing any type of modern conspiracy, and you don't even need to do Bureau 13. You could have stuff just like things like Mission Impossible, if you wanted to run that type of game. Yeah, James Bond. James like, Bond, all that. Yeah, then Mossad would be... At times they could be allies, at times they could be enemies, depending on what particular dynamic you're running with them there. And as I said, it could switch between adventure. And a lot of times, 
a spy that you've been an ally with, all of a sudden he's got different orders, and all of a sudden this guy that you've worked with professionally for 10 years is trying to kill you. What was, was Dr. Bashir's spy character on the holodeck? I don't remember his name. I, I forget. Yeah, DS9. You know, that would be cool. That would be real cool. Okay, and the last one for tonight, the Thule Society, or the Thule Gesellschaft. They basically were the forerunners of the Third Reich. Yeah, the Nazis. Yeah, yeah Nazis. Illinois were, Nazis. I hate Illinois Nazis. Um, so yeah, the, the Thule Gesellschaft, following World War One, any anti-Semitic groups and several Aryan groups sprang up in Germany. Their German Orden was one of them, unique in it, pandered to a powerful and wealthy nobles of the old regime. It's you actually put deeper into them, they believed that they were descended from uh, the Aryan... Yeah. Or the, actually, the Nordic aliens. Yeah. The, they believe that that's why the uh, light skin, blue eyes, blonde hair, they believe that they're uh, the Nordic gods, which were the extraterrestrials, were the ones yeah. that started your Aryan race. Yeah, they, they took racial purity very seriously, which prominently figured in the society's brand of mysticism. Joining the Thule Society required an actual written application including details of hair, eye, and skin color, along with racial information about parents, grandparents, and spouses. Yes. Um, And their mysticism blended directly into their race theory, claiming that they they had found and were using a set of runes that had been used by the original Aryan Empire. Um, Yeah, their their primary tenet was the absolute belief in the Aryan race and the power of their bloodline. So, yeah, see, I always thought the Thule Gesellschaft was... They were the mystical arm. No, actually, that was, and we have another part here that we'll probably be getting to next taping, the inner narrative. That was the mystic arm of Nazism led by Heinrich Himmler. Yeah, because the actual tool, they were the ones that initially brought the belief forward that they were descended from extraterrestrial. Yeah. That they were the ones who descend, you know, that were the, like you were saying, had the runes, which were supposedly alien artifacts that they used to uh, conduct the rituals. But, but that's, that's why, why the racial, racial purity in the bloodline, and uh, they even cited like pseudo scientific knowledge yeah, where they met skulls, yeah. like uh, physical features to show that white people had larger cranial mass, and it yeah, was great. They, that that was such a prevalent tenet among them, and eventually they morphed into what became the Nazi Party, the Third Reich, through the 20s and 30s. Yep. And as I said, there, there's no way you're going to run these guys. Unless you're running an all-evil campaign, they're going to be villains. Let's face it. Oh, I mean, God, yeah. Yeah, but to this day, and and the sentiment is out there, you know, you're always going to want to punch a Nazi. These would be the people that you'd want to, you know, start swinging at. Yep. Um. All right. Now, we have other secret societies. I mean, a whole list that other ones besides those big six that we can discuss later on. And, oh, definitely. Oh, no, I, I've got quite the list here. Um, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Now, folks, as I said, we'll wrap this up particular part up here. Using secret societies in your tabletop role-playing games brings in whole new elements for the GM and the players. It allows you to go deeper into character motivation and background, whether you your character is not part of secret society or they are before you start campaign play. It brings up a lot of paranoia between players because you're looking at the other player going, okay, is this person, is this character have motivations that I don't know about that's going to conflict with what we're trying to do here? And of course, it for the GM, it brings about all sorts of new ways to mess with your players' heads because, and I will use the euphemism, a good mind frell is always makes for fantastic role-playing. As Bruce says, conflict brings about good role-playing. And what's cool, it brings like an existential horror. Whether, it Regardless of what side you're on, because if you're the victim, you can see from the victim's perspective and like gradually see the outreach of these societies 
that are manipulating and pulling like the, the secret hand. And if you're playing on the side of the villain and the bad guy, you can see the horror and like moral and ideological conflicts within your own group. You know, like how how far is too far? Yeah. Okay. Um, as far as any questions for this, for this part of our season ten premiere, we do officially welcome Tony and Dana to the Gaming on the Frontier podcast. Thank you very much. Yeah, you guys have been great for for, for your first your inaugural episode. You guys, despite tech problems on Tony's part. <clears throat> uh, and that was beyond him. But no, you guys knocked it out of the park. You guys bolted very well. The stuff that you contributed due to your experience as tabletop gamers fit in here perfectly. Yeah, well, thanks a lot for being with us. Yes, yeah. Welcome welcome to the asylum, folks. Um, <laughs> for those of you who want to question four of us on adding real-world cults and secret societies to your game. And we will, we're continuing this next session because we get a lot more. We basically went through the first half of the outline. Please please contact us on the Podbean site, tritechsystems.podbean.com. Fans of the Gaming on the Frontier podcast on Facebook. Um, Google Plus, I hear, is going on the way out, so I'm not sure uh, about that, how that's going to go. But also iTunes, which we are on. Uh, Contact us there. Leave us a good rating on what you like as we are taking this new bold step into being system agnostic, as in any and all things tabletop role-playing. And we will be back next week with a lot more. But until then. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Gaming on the Frontier podcast is wholly owned by its hosts. It is released under the Creative Commons 3.0 license. No commercial reproduction and any use of any element of the podcast must be attributed to the Gaming on the Frontier podcast. Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org, colon 8027.